The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, please remain standing if you're able and turn uh, in your scriptures to Romans chapter 1, reading from verse 1 to verse 15. Romans chapter 1, the first 15 verses, that's on page 939 of your pew Bible. This is the Word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under uh, under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Amen, and thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, we come now to your word, seeking life from you, seeking our Savior, seeking your goodness and your grace. And Lord, we would not just hear it preached, we would have it laid upon our hearts. Father in heaven, we we do... Uh, ask you and plead with you that you'll be merciful to us in this time. We confess that we enter your presence burdened in so many ways, weakness of body, weakness of mind, conflict and trouble in our minds, tiredness, struggles. And we plead with you, Lord God, that you would grant us the grace to set all this aside, that we might revel and rejoice in the goodness of you, our great God, in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us then, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, last week we began to work our way through the uh, letter of Paul to the Romans, looking at the overview of the letter Uh, itself. The theme of the righteousness of God revealed not only in condemnation of the wicked, but chiefly the righteousness of God 
as revealed in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And without wasting any time, Paul immediately dives into that one, Jesus Christ, the one who has called him. And that description of the one who has called him there in verses two following is full and profound. It is full and profound because our Lord is not just the one who called the Apostle Paul, rather he is the object of Paul's calling, the object of Paul's calling. Paul is called to preach Christ Jesus. Paul is called to preach Christ Jesus. And so he spends some time describing the Christ that he is called to preach. He, moreover, describes his own desires, his longing to go to Rome, to be with to be with the Romans, to encourage them and be encouraged by them. And the introduction reminds us of the substance of our faith, the substance of the gospel, Jesus Christ. And it reminds us that Jesus Christ is to be preached to all men and all women, regardless of their background. It also reminds us that Paul had that particular calling to preach to the Gentiles, the glorious truth of Jesus Christ. We'll see this in two ways this morning. Paul's calling by Christ in verses 1 to 7. Paul's calling by Christ. And secondly, Paul's calling to Rome, his calling by Christ and his calling to Rome. First of all, then, in verses 1 to 7, his calling by Christ. We saw last week and we read this morning, Paul's apostleship was one which was peculiarly to the Gentiles. And yet we know from the text before us and the rest of Scripture that at the time of writing this epistle, he had not yet been able to go to Rome. We see that in verse 13. So we ask ourselves, how then was this church formed? Well, actually, we don't know how it was formed. Some suggest it was Paul who planted the church, but we see from this text it couldn't have been Paul. Some suggest it was Peter who went there, started the church, uh, and thus there are claims then with respect to the papacy. But there's no record of Peter making it to Rome either. No, it seems that this church was started simply by Christians moving out of the Holy Land and throughout the Roman Empire, finally making it to Rome itself. William Hendrickson concludes on this matter, the gospel must have reached Rome at a very early date. Why does he say that? In part because what we read in Acts, Acts chapter 2 and verse 10, the day of Pentecost, Peter and the apostles are speaking in various tongues of the nations round about them. And we learn that in that group of people that were listening to Peter preach were people from Rome precisely the point. It suggests to us at least that they some heard the word preached, returned to Rome, and established a church. After Paul's converted, he has a particular zeal and desire to go to Rome and preach the gospel. But why is that? Why is it that he has this particular zeal to the Gentiles? And we can answer that question by asking another question, by whom was Paul called and why was he called in that fashion? Or to what end was he called? 
By whom was Paul called? Well, we know the answer. It's very simple at one level. It was Jesus. It was Jesus Christ, the risen and ascended Savior. But that doesn't explain to us why Paul spends verse 2, really through verse 4 and 5, with this lengthy description of Christ that we really we find in no other epistle that he writes. Verses 2 to 4, there is a detailed and particular description of our Lord Jesus to suit the purposes for which Paul is writing this epistle. We can see there in verse 1 and 2, Paul makes it clear that he's an apostle, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to the gospel of God. And then in verse 2, 3, 4, and a little bit into 5, he spends time describing our Lord, our Lord who is the gospel himself. And then he tells us, verse 7 and 8, this is, he, he is called to preach to those who are in Rome. Why this description in this way? Luther comments, and you'll hear at least from me uh, anyway, uh, a lot from Luther in the coming uh, months and possibly years we preach to Romans. Luther writes this, the gospel centers in the Son of God. The Son of God, he's thinking the eternal Son of God. But Luther goes on to say, but not merely in the Son of God as such, but inasmuch as he became incarnate of the seed of David. He became a weak man, says Luther. But the gospel also treats the Son of God in majesty and sovereignty, ordained and appointed to be the Son of God with omnipotence and glory. Luther's summarizing what Paul says there in verses 2 through 4. The eternal Son, who is without beginning of days or end of life, became man. The eternal Son became incarnate according to the lineage of David. We see that the eternal Son, who became man, is the gospel of God. Set apart, verse 1, for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets concerning his Son. Jesus is the gospel of God. And what Paul is doing here is emphasizing the eternal reality, the eternal deity of Jesus, but also his true humanity. He says there in verse uh, 3 concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Well, we know his fleshly lineage through Mary and also adopted through Joseph. It's of David. There's no doubt about it in Scripture. Paul is emphasizing the true humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why so? Why is this so important to Paul? Because only true man could represent men in salvation. Only true man could represent men and women in salvation. As Heidelberg 16 says, God's justice requires that human nature which has sinned must pay for sin. God's justice requires that human nature which has sinned must pay for sin. In other words, Jesus had to be true man, according to the flesh, descended from David. Yet Paul's also very clear, this one descended from David is also true God, the eternal Son. Verse 3, the gospel of God concerning his Son. 
and verse 4 also, and who, this is, this is Christ, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He's true God. And in his incarnation, he didn't set aside that godness, that deity, veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see, veiled, veiled, that's the point. Not removed, just slightly hidden by the veil of flesh. He was true God. Why was he true God? Heidelberg again answers the question that by the power of his Godhead, he might bear in his manhood the burden of God's wrath and so obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. That by the power of his Godhead, Godhead, his deity, he might sustain his human nature while being under the wrath of God and thus restore to us righteousness and life. Jesus needed to be truly God, and Jesus needed to be truly man. And this gospel of God was not something new with Paul, for he tells in verse 2 that this gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That is to say, we ought to see Jesus as God and Jesus as man throughout the entirety of Scripture, Old Testament and New. What's Paul's point? He's saying the message of Scripture Salvation in this one, Jesus Christ, that is the gospel of God to Jew and Gentile alike, is the gracious gift of a righteous God. A righteous God. That is to say, in condemnation of the wicked and in salvation of sinners, God remains faithful just and righteous. It's one of Paul's central themes. The gospel is not imaginary. It is real. It is true. It is logical. It is rational. It is theological. Paul's going to write there in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. God is just in saving sinners. That's to say, friends, the gospel of God has provided a Savior not only fit for the task to save sinners, but to do so righteously. The gospel does not compromise God's character. It reveals it in righteousness perfectly. And his manhood and his deity are a central component of that righteous gospel. Man has sinned. Man must pay. But no ordinary man could simply pay. It required the God-man to pay for those sins in order to restore to us righteousness and life. Friends, this is the Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the Savior with true capacities for salvation. 
And this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul calls him there at the end of verse 4, is worthy of reception, is worthy of trust. The God-man providing himself to us so that we might be saved. But not a salvation which compromises God, not a salvation that doesn't truly deal with sin or sweeps it under the carpet, not a salvation that's a legal fiction or an imagination. A true, rational, just, logical, righteous salvation provided by God for the sinner. And friends, in that there is great comfort for the Christian. Because God is righteous in salvation, we need not fear that there is any weak element to the chain of salvation that God has provided us. We need not doubt for one moment that anything on the part of God or his Savior Jesus Christ is either unfair, unrighteous, or in some way weak. We need not doubt it. We need not doubt salvation by God. He has given us the gospel of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has provided us with a Savior who in a perfect manner delivers us from our sins, pronounces us righteous, and grants us the ability to stand before God eternally. That's the gospel of God, of a righteous God that Paul is writing to the Romans and is writing to us today. Paul's very clear that it's this Christ who he proclaims, who righteously does what God calls him to do. It is this Christ that called him to apostleship, verse 5. And that apostleship, verse 5, 6, and 7, is for a specific purpose in the history of redemption. We're reminded of who Paul is, aren't we? Pharisee of the Pharisees, dwelling in darkness, persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. Why, as Christ said, a persecutor of Christ himself. And here he is saying this, verse 5, this Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. We have received grace and apostleship. Isn't that staggering? The mercy of God in calling a Paul, not only to be saved, but then to, in a peculiar fashion, declare the excellencies of the one that he formerly hated. Salvation is a miracle. It's sovereign. It's of God. Yet Paul says his calling is for a specific purpose. Verse 5, he says it's to bring about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith is the first, perhaps, of many, many debated passages in the epistle to the Romans. It kind of sounds a bit strange to us, reform types, doesn't it? The obedience of faith. I mean, typically we think of, of faith uh, at least justification, anyway, being set in opposition to our own works. We tend to think of grace and uh, law, faith, uh, and, and then obedience, not really belonging together. And there are many 
possibilities of what this could mean that his apostleship is to bring about the obedience of faith. I think what Paul is saying is simply this. He exists as an apostle of Christ to declare the excellencies of Christ, that people will come to a true and saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and that relationship will be manifested in true obedience. It's the message of Scripture from start to end. Faith produces good works. Sincere faith always produces good works. A true faith is evidenced by our conduct. A true faith is not evidenced by what we say. Talk is cheap, as the saying goes. But a true faith always produces obedience. That's to say, friends, Paul is saying by this phrase that obedience in the Christian life and that is obedience to the will of God, not our own will, obedience in the Christian life is not optional. It's not optional. We're not making obedience the essence of faith. That would be to turn upside down on its head the doctrine of justification. But what we are saying is this, true sincere faith always produces obedience, always produces Christ-likeness. Paul is saying his apostleship to the Gentiles, his writing for us here today, as he lays before us the righteousness of God in salvation, ought to produce in us obedience. Saving faith results in Christ-like works. And notice what he says that that obedience of faith, it's not just for one narrow group of people. The obedience of faith here for the sake of his name among all the nations. Among all the nations. Paul again is reminding us of that historical covenant he made beforehand with Abraham. In your seed, Christ, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed And Paul's very aware. He has a pivotal role in the expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles. We're told before this was prophesied and promised, verse 2 in the scriptures, and now the gospel spread is going to the whole world. The news of Jesus Christ. And it's according to that plan, and with the content of Jesus Christ, that Paul says in verse 7, to all those who are in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is just not a, a standard greeting, friends. When you read these words, dig out a good commentary in your own devotions, dig out a good commentary and and think hard upon them. This is an explicitly, overtly Christian and Trinitarian greeting. Greeting that not only reveals the content of the greeting, but reveals to us the deity of Christ as the greeting comes from him also. We have the greeting of grace and of peace, divine blessings. You won't find them anywhere else apart from God. The grace of God. 
the grace by which we live, by which we breathe, by which we move, by which we daily persevere, by which we put sin to death, the grace by, with, by which we worship, and the grace by which we love God and each other. Grace to you, says Paul. And peace, peace with God, peace with each other, that direct product of gospel reconciliation. The product of Christ's work for us and in us. Paul says to the Romans, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, when Paul blesses the Romans and when your pastors bless you with these words at the beginning of worship and give you a benediction at the end of worship, friends, that's not just something nice we do. It's not just a nice way to start and finish our worship. When you hear that salutation at the beginning of worship and the benediction at the end of worship, the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is blessing you, my friend, with a true and a real and a divine and a powerful blessing. God is blessing you, child of God, with his own character, his own presence, his own power, his graces, his peace. He's saying to you, I am with you, and you are with me. And because of that, you are blessed. Every time you hear the salutation, every time you hear the benediction, feast on those moments that God himself is bestowing upon you, gifts that do not belong rightly to this world, but come from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's most of my sermon this morning. I'm going to be brief with verses 8 to 15. You see, Paul has just blessed them, blessed them with, with, with God himself when he says, Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul has a calling to go to Rome to in person declare that true faith, to declare Christ. He says, verse 8, I give thanks to God through Jesus Christ for you all. He's speaking to them of his prayer life. Why do, does his prayer life, why is he giving thanks for them? Well, he tells us, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Think on that. I mean, he's talking about the Roman Empire, the known world. The faith of the Roman church is declared in all the world, in every church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The faith of the Romans was well known. Why? Because of their conduct, because of their works, their behavior. Isn't it staggering that a church that existed 2,000 years ago receives a commendation then in Holy Scripture, the echoes of which last until today? These Christians, most of them nameless, their faith has been known throughout the world, not just then, until now. Paul is giving thanks for them. And not just giving thanks, he expresses unto them 
an earnest longing and desire to be found in their midst. Verse 10, he says, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. He's longing to be with them. He's not been able to go there. The church by now has probably been around for some 25 years or so, probably, not being dogmatic on that. And he wants to go there. But as yet, he hasn't been able to. This is not like a First Thessalonians uh, uh, prohibition from going. It's not been stopped by Satan. He will tell us later on why he's not been able to go to Rome. Chapter 15, verse 20. He says, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you as I pass through and go to Spain. He's saying, I can't come to you yet and haven't been able to come to you because the gospels already been preached in Rome. There's already a faithful church there, a vibrant Christians. He preaches, his desire is to preach not where others have preached Christ, but where they haven't preached Christ. And he's been so busy, probably in Corinth and the surrounding area where he seems to be writing this from, that his time is better spent there, but he wants to go to Rome. He says, I long to go and see you because my ultimate goal, he says, is to go where? To Spain, travel through Italy, France, onto Spain to preach the gospel where it had not yet been preached. He says, I want to reap a harvest among you. He says, I want to give you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. He sees his time among them as being mutually encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine. In other words, Paul is longing to be with the saints at Rome. He has heard so much good about them. He wants to be there. He's not going to stay there. He's got other places to go. Notice what he says at the end of this section. Verse 14, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. He, he says, yes, I want to be with you, but I've got work to do. I'm under obligation to Greeks and barbarians, the wise and the foolish. What's he saying? Again, another debated text in Romans. He's saying he is under obligation to every kind of person, whether they be the noble, educated, learned Greek speakers of society or the foolish barbarians, as he calls them, whoever they might be, whoever they might be. And we see this playing out in the life of Paul. We see him before the great and good of society, so to speak, and we see him before the beggars of society. He says, I am under obligation to each of them. Paul's view of his calling as an apostle and a gospel minister was not 
that he should go into a city and attract a certain kind of person. Not that he should attract a certain kind of... His view of his ministry was not that it's narrow. Everyone. Of every ethnicity, of every social background, every occupation. Everyone. He says, I'm under obligation to them. I owe them. I am bound to them in my gospel calling. Rich or poor, cultured or uncultured, every group of people, regardless of distinction, need to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, friend, what's our response? What's our response to what we have heard today? First of all, dear friends, what's your response to the gospel of Jesus Christ? What's your response to Jesus Christ, the God-man, the person? matters not whether you're new to the faith, whether you're straying from the faith, or whether you've sat in the pew week after week after week. What is your response to Jesus Christ? Have you embraced him by faith? Do you delight in him? Do you love him? Or are you ambivalent to him? Do any of us here today think we are too good for him? That we don't need his work? We don't need his righteousness? Friend, if we didn't need Christ's righteousness, he would never have come in the first place. And yet he did. And he died to take away sins from sinners and to reckon those same sinners righteous in the sight of Almighty God. He alone is the way to the Father. Receive him. Delight in him. Find your joy and your meaning in him. If you're a child of God here today, surely are we not reminded of the gracious reality of our salvation? What reminded that salvation is to Jew and Gentile, that Paul's ministry among the Gentiles is somewhat autobiographical for us, is it not? That, that were it not for the ministry to the Gentiles of Paul and others, in all likelihood, we would not be here today. If it wasn't for the expansive love of God to all nations we probably wouldn't be in his house today, worshipping him as brother and sister in Christ, worshipping the true and living God. And so we're reminded, perhaps, of our two chief responses to the salvation that we've heard of today. The first response is this. Who am I? Who am I? that I should receive this salvation. It must be our confession that we are not worthy of the least of God's blessings, let alone the greatest blessings he has ever provided. It's a call to each one of us to think humbly of ourselves and of our own abilities. The second great calling to such a blessing is to be a worshipper, a worshipper, privately, familiarly, corporately. If you have faith in Christ this day, you're called to be a worshipper. 
Surely we say to this message this morning, we say with the psalmist, uh, the psalmist about our God and our Savior, O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Let's pray. We do magnify your great and glorious name. We worship you. There is no God like you, so gracious and kind and compassionate. We give you thanks, Lord God, that your mercy has blessed us, your grace has reached us, has found us, has saved us. We pray now, Father in heaven, that that mercy and grace will be spread across the face of this earth, that all nations, all peoples might come to know you and your Savior. Be gracious to us, Lord, that these words may sink into our hearts and our lives might change as they need to. Be with us, we pray, (coughs) for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.